0: Music, news, and information. This is Radio 3. Newswrap, a full roundup of the day's stories from home and overseas. Every evening we speak directly to the people behind the news and making the news. Plus, the day's finance and what's happened in the world of sport. Newswrap, 6 p.m. weeknights on RTHK Radio 3. Hello again, I'm Jim Gould, Head of Radio 3. We'd like to hear from you about what you think of our online services. What's good in your view? What's not so good? What do you want more of or less of? We'd like to hear your comments about our Radio 3 website and Facebook pages. Do you ever visit our archive? Would you like more podcasts? How can we improve our service? Send us your thoughts. You can email us on feedback at rthk.hk. That's feedback at rthk.hk. Or send us a message on Facebook at rthkradio3hongkong. Remember, we want to hear from you. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. And a very good morning from us here at Radio 3, Radio Television Hong Kong. 29 minutes now before 9 o'clock. A look at the latest on the weather front. An intense northeast monsoon is bringing cold weather to Guangdong. So affecting us, of course, with cloudy conditions, overcast as well. A few rain patches we can expect and certainly a little chilly as well. Maximum temperature today around 13 degrees and possibly a degree or two lower in the new territories in some of those exposed places. Moderate northerly winds, fresh at times. And the outlook... Um, cold a few more rain patches tomorrow morning weather improving with temperatures rising gradually over the following couple of days Uh, cold weather warning official and latest air temperature in 11 degrees celsius a relative humidity of 91 percent now on radio 3 of course read all about it
1: Good morning. Welcome to this week's episode of Read All About It. I'm Marshall Moore.
2: And I'm Yuri Vitacci.
1: We have two relatively new books that you might not have read yet, as well
2: as a classic. Which we'll be talking about later. And the classic this week is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. My book this week is Anne
1: Rice's new one, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis. From the title, I'll have to admit, it doesn't sound that auspicious. I was a little worried. Um, I was excited when she decided to resurrect the vampire series because I've been reading them since I was a teenager. And I've been a fanboy, and now I'm a fanboy in my mid-40s. And actually, this book justified it. This is the best thing she's written in years. Um, What she's done... She'd written, probably a lot of people are familiar with Interview with the Vampire and the Vampire Lestat. They've been hugely popular. They've kind of made their mark on the culture. They're the books that really brought back the vampire craze of the last couple of decades. But what's so cool with this one is she took some time off from the series. She wrote some other books. She went through some personal transformations. And then... I'm not really sure what prompted her to restart the series a couple of years ago. Uh, She did that with a book called Prince Lestat, and then this is a sequel to that, and it's actually crazy good. Uh, The basic idea is that the vampires in this fictional universe have kind of organized themselves now in a way that they never were before, and so Prince Lestat, as the title suggests, is their ruler now. And he holds the single force that animates all of them. It had been inside of another vampire previously, but now it's in him. So he's like the most valuable vampire in the world, because if anyone kills him, they all die. And she introduces, she, Anne Rice, introduces this other species of non-humans this time. These creatures that were actually made... And this is where it sounds like it should go off the rails, but it completely works in outer space. And the whole idea, and I just love this, and I can't talk about it because I want to crack up. I want to laugh because the idea sounds so corny when I describe it. But when you're reading it, it actually really works. But the idea is that Atlantis actually existed some 14,000 years ago and it's been it had been interfered with over a long period of time by aliens and lo and behold they made some non-human creatures that can't die and so they have a relationship with the vampires and i can't say too much about what that is but the cool thing she does here is she actually explains everything she's finally come up with a cohesive explanation for like what the vampires are where they came from why how it happened what connects them all of it. And it's it's one of her typical origin stories where she keeps going farther and farther back. Now she's explained everything, but she's also really modernized the series and taken a big step forward with it. So the idea sounds silly, but then when you're reading it, it all kind of makes
2: sense and it actually really, really works. Do we have uh, the the, the beloved characters uh, from the the the, the, uh, Lestat and Interview from a Vampire? They're all
1: back, pretty much. She killed off in the previous book a few of the ones that I would say had kind of served their purpose. Uh, Because uh, she's like Dickens in some ways, where she populates her book with a cast of thousands. And for the longest time, she maintained that. And what was really good about the previous book, Prince Lestat, is that she killed off some of the ones that had kind of served their purpose in the plot. And this time, there's not much calling going on. There are a couple that get wiped out, but not that many. But the important thing is she's introducing some new ones, and she's taking it in a couple of new directions. And it's really genuinely
2: interesting. Would you say it's even better than the classics, the the interview with the vampire? I'd say it stands alongside them. I think that Part of
1: what worked so well about the older books was that they were so surprising because she started with Interview with a Vampire 40 years ago, and obviously that's become a classic. And then with the Vampire Lestat, the second one, that was kind of the origin story of that vampire. And with each book, there was an origin story. She went back farther and larger in scope, farther back in history, and more and more audacious. And in a way, this is a return to form where just when you thought she couldn't have possibly gone any farther back, she actually goes and does it. But then just when you think she couldn't do anything more modern, she goes and does that too. So
2: surprisingly, it really, really works. It, it sounds like uh, she's taken a lot of risks. I mean, um, um, the uh, the outer space thing and Atlantis, these are, these are old tropes, really, aren't they? It, it's surprising. I mean... What she
1: did with it, she does take huge risks. And I agree with the Atlantis thing and aliens. When I first read about that, I was actually reluctant to read the book. And I read some reviews online before I started reading it, and there were people who really didn't like it. Uh, one criticism I heard was that because she's started in the past to write one book about a synthetic man and the whole story was about this man who isn't sure whether he has a soul and she started trying she started on another book at some point that was titled Born for Atlantis and it was meant to be an Atlantis adventure story and i think what she did here was to take some of the ideas that she had for those two books and she realized she f- she could connect them to the vampire world in a way that actually made sense so it's a huge risk some people didn't like it um I thought it's crazy, and but it's crazy in a good way. It's crazy in a way that this shouldn't work as well as it does, but it actually explains everything, and it makes
2: sense. Now, some of the listeners will only know Anne Rice and uh, Interview with a Vampire through the uh, Tom Cruise movie. Um, how, how, how does it fit with that? Was, that? was that a good movie? It was better than it could have been. Um, Neil Jordan, I
1: think, did a pretty faithful job. Actually, Tom Cruise was better in the role than I would have ever expected when I read that he'd been cast for it back in the day. Um, Would he be appropriate to play the role today? It wouldn't be my first choice. But I'm curious because I, I understand that the books have been optioned now and they're going to become a TV series on like HBO or something. And she and her son, Christopher Rice, who's also a novelist, are actually writing it.
2: It really seems to be the case that uh, the vampires, as you say, have come back in a big way. In fact, all sorts of sort of half-dead creatures are back. You know, zombies are back, vampires are back, and of course we had the um, the Twilight series. Uh, what is it about readers and, and the half-dead? Well, I think that in the case of vampires,
1: I think that part of the reason they kind of had their day, which is not to say that they're passé now, but... I think that they came along during the 80s and 90s and that was actually a response to AIDS because if you look at like what's popular in horror over the generations, it's always kind of in response to something that's frightening the public. So back in the 50s and 60s, it was monsters because people were afraid of nuclear war and mutation. Um, Back in the 70s, for example, it was things like doubles and brainwashing and Satan because people were afraid of communism and the Soviet menace. And then vampires came along after that. That was about AIDS because it was a sexually transmitted disease and the whole idea of sharing blood and vampires. I think today the zombie thing is about like overpopulation and climate change. So there's always actually something going on behind whatever's popular in horror at the time. And I think ghosts are gonna be next because basically we're all gonna die. We love to be terrified, don't we? That's the that's the human race for you. Well, we've got a pretty good reason to be terrified right now. So one other really great thing about reading horror novels is that they're about catharsis. You know, you read something to scare you to death and then you feel so much better for having survived it when so many people in the book didn't. So for everybody who's having existential angst right now,
2: this is just a fantastic book to go read. Anne right is a cut above, isn't she, the normal horror writer? Um, What what makes her special? I think there's a couple of things. I think partly
1: it's about the humanity of the characters because she was the first one to reinvent vampires as being very human and struggling with their identities in the way that a lot of people do. And I think also the fact that she has this huge cast and people come to care about them and want to know about their continued adventures, she does that. And it means she's still spending a paragraph describing what everybody's wearing, and then that's an eye roller. It's like, oh, come on, Anne. But overall, there's, uh, there's a lot that she actually does that's really pretty brilliant. That being said, I wouldn't start with this book if you haven't read Anne Rice yet and you want to. I'd, I'd definitely go back and read Interview with the Vampire first, just because it's where the whole thing started and you can really see why she has the stature as a writer that she does today. So I've been talking about Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis by Anne Rice.
2: My book today is The Harder They Come by T.C. Boyle. Um, both the books we're talking about today are by authors who uh, launched on the scene 40 years ago or thereabouts and yet are still around and uh, are just getting better and better. Uh, T.C. Boyle is not really a household name uh, except with the, the readers of, of, uh, of literary books. He, he writes uh, uh, complex, deep novels that you have to read quite slowly because there's, there's so much in them. And uh, also collections of short stories, so highly popular with the learned set. Not quite a uh, uh, bestseller mass-market material, although there are some movies uh, now made of his uh, books. His, uh, his latest book, although I actually I think it's, this is his second uh, latest book, I think there's a new one just came out, is called The Harder They Come, and it's a great read. It's a really exciting read. And uh, let me just tell you something about the story. Um, the The meaning of the, the message of the book is that the American psyche is very gentle, soft, intellectual, uh, full of good things, democracy and uh, principle, but it's also hard, strong, powerful because, you know, they were pioneers who settled this difficult land. So these two um, elements uh, clash in a very interesting way. And that's what this story is about, how the two elements that make up the American psyche uh, interact with each other. The story starts with a scene of uh, American tourists in their 70s on a, on a tour bus um, visiting, taking pictures, buying snacks, the usual sort of thing. And then a a villain tries to hold up the tour bus and one of the 70-year-old men happens to have been an ex-Vietnam vet. vet. So, of course, he's he's strong, he knows how to fight. He grabs the villain, uh, gets him into a headlock and accidentally kills him. So we see then the sort of soft outside of the American, the sort of fat, aged tourist, but also the hard inside. These people have fought wars. They're strong. They're determined. They can achieve things. And uh, so that's the, the opening of the story. Then we meet the, the second character. And the second character is an anarchist. Now, an anarchist sounds like someone really tough who blows up McDonald's. But this anarchist has that soft side as well. Uh, it's a female. And her main anger with the system is that it doesn't let her behave like she, she, she wants to. She wants to have her dog without, uh, without a license, without the, the the things that the system uh, wants, uh, demands from her. And then we meet the third character in the story. So our old man who killed the bad guy, he returns back to America and meets his son. Now, his son is uh, mentally disturbed, he's in his 20s, and is delusional. And again, we have this soft and hard. The soft part of the son is that he's obsessed with an an American hero. There was a pioneer called John Coulter, who uh, did amazing things in the, the late 1700s, and... Um, <clears throat> The uh, the son, whose name is Adam, is obsessed with this American hero. That's the that's the good side of him. The bad side of him is that he's mentally deranged and he has a gun, as every good American should. And uh, so, of course, we've got this uh, interesting um, tension building up um, because he's mentally deranged. He can't cope with the complexity of life in America. Um, is America a kind, easy place? where individual rights are everything or is it a place where people control you because the rule of law is all important. Uh, he can't cope with that and he has a gun. So when he gets angry, he goes and gets his gun. Uh, so you can see that we have these three main characters and the story uh, is building up towards a, a, a climax. Things with guns in America really don't tend to end well, do they? That's right. And this is actually based on a true story, which I didn't know when I read it, but apparently uh, uh, quite a lot of it is pretty much uh, as it happened. Um, one of the nice things about this story is it's interwoven with another story, the story of uh, the uh, pioneer called Coulter, who inspired the the main character, the delusional young man with the gun. And Coulter's story is really is quite amazing. Um, I love it when they find these historical characters and you think, wow, uh, why didn't I know about this guy? So Coulter and uh, one of his colleagues, they're they're rowing their canoes in in early America. There's nobody there but the Native Americans. And they come upon a bunch of two or three hundred Native Americans. And there's just, you know, these two white guys. And a fight soon starts up. I mean, how can one, two guys fight uh, so many uh, enemies? The Native Americans kill um, one of the white men and Coulter is left on his own. They strip him. So he's naked, no shoes, no clothes in front of uh, this massive group of Native Americans. And then they tell him to run. So he starts running and the whole crowd is chasing him. So it's an unbelievable scene. And Coulter runs. He runs and he runs and he runs. He runs for eight kilometres and eventually outruns all but one of the Native Americans. He turns around suddenly kills the one following him and then runs some more. And he goes into the water and hides in a sort of beaver dam, a log blockage in the water. Uh, Very exciting stuff. So we've got this uh, historical tale, true story, and we've also... uh, It's interwoven with uh, another true story, a modern-day story about... uh, 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 a man with delusions, who has a gun, and eventually big trouble uh, ensues. That's a great story. I am American, and I haven't heard that one. The first thing
1: that's really coming to my mind here, since you, you told this story so well, and I'm completely intrigued by it, and of course I'm going to have to go home and like check Wikipedia about this when as soon as I can. So by the time he got into the Beaver Dam, did he actually have any clothes
2: yet, or was he still running around naked? Mm. So he was—he was still naked. He's—he's he's naked in the water. He's naked and he's underwater. And of course, the the hundreds of uh, Native Americans eventually catch up with him. So he has to—he has to basically learn to breathe water. Basically, he's just an unbelievably powerful superhero character. Um, and uh, in, in fact, the the I think the Victorians actually celebrated uh, Colter's run. Uh, this this one event in his life. Um, with plays and songs and stories. But uh, he's been forgotten since. So it's wonderful when a a writer digs up a wonderful piece of history like this. The top story uh, is, of course, about this uh, delusional young man uh, who is inspired by Coulter. And that's also a true story. And it's a true story of a young man with a gun who can't cope with modern life and uh, uh, eventually... um, Eventually shoots the gun. So uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending of the story, but uh, that's also based uh, on, a, on a real story. And uh, so uh, I actually read the whole book without realising any of it was true. I just thought, wow, this guy's imagination is fantastic. And then later I decided to, to look up Wikipedia and discovered that um, that most of the characters are true and John Coulter, the historical character, uh, it's entirely a, a true story. So would you say that the book
1: is meant just as a work of literature on its own, or would you say that it's meant as a cautionary tale? Because obviously we're all used to the issues with guns and violence and general rampaging craziness in America. So where, do you, where does the book
2: fit into all of that? It, it fits in by letting us into the heads of people who, uh, who have guns or who are anarchists or who are uh, unhappy about something. Uh, and it does a very valuable service in that in that sense. I mean, T. C. Boyle is a is a literary writer, so um, he really makes the characters uh, frighteningly real, and you are right there in, in his head, uh, in each character's head. Uh, let me just say a word though about the author himself, who is a pretty amazing character. Um, he's, he's listed on the book cover as T. C. Boyle, um, but he used to be known at, by his full name, which is unpronounceable. It's spelled C O R A G H E S S A N like hair San. Um which I believe is an Irish name and is probably pronounced something like Corazon or something. T C Boyle uh, his actual real name is is John. Uh, T. John Boyle. But he put in this annoying name To uh, to to send a message and uh, to make things hard. It's one of these books that's actually quite hard work, but rewarding. I've read a couple of his earlier books
1: from back in the t-unpronounceable days, so I know what you're talking about.
2: This is a book for the sort of uh, reader who likes a literary read, but also likes a story. The story is pacey and fast, and has has twists and turns that you don't expect. So, uh, a a great read and. uh, interesting message about modern American culture. And the book is The Harder They Come by T.C. Boyle.
1: So, our classic this week is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And this is just an amazing book. Um, Bradbury's written a lot of really important books. Uh, His other books, The October Country, Something Wicked This Way Comes, The Martian Chronicles, all of them were important in their day. They're important today. And this one, even though Bradbury is mostly known for science fiction or speculative fiction, this book is a little different from that because he's written more of a straight-up literary dystopian novel here. And the premise behind the book is interesting. In some near future America, which at the time he wrote and published it, which was 1953, so he anticipated this would be American society back in sometime in the 60s, um, it had become illegal to own books. And so our main character, Guy Montag, was a fireman. And he wasn't a fireman whose job it was to put fires out. He was a fireman whose job it was to burn things to the ground. And so anybody caught having books would have their house burned. And so the story kind of proceeds from there. It has one of the best opening lines ever. It was a pleasure to burn. So what that tells us right away is this is a man who likes his job. And it's an interesting dystopian book because most of the time... If you think of Brave New World or 1984 or The Handmaid's Tale, a lot of them tend to be told from people who don't like the dystopia and don't buy into it. And the difference here is that Guy Montag does. And he thinks the society he's in is a good thing and good things are happening in America. So nobody has books. And that all begins to change because otherwise there'd really be no story there. Um, he's, he meets this young girl who is a neighbor and she's kind of an outcast. She's kind of a free thinker and she's not popular at school because she dares to think for herself. And God knows we don't like that in America. And, um, So through getting to know her, he starts questioning things. And he's having trouble with his wife. This is kind of like the 1950s hysterical American female stereotype when she's just tried to commit suicide by sleeping pills. And um, he's starting to really question his life, his marriage and everything.
2: And then on a raid into somebody's house, he actually steals a book. We're talking about Fahrenheit 451 by... Uh, Ray Bradbury. It's a story uh, about um, uh, the temperature. The title of the the book comes from the temperature at which uh, paper uh, bursts into flame, and uh, it's scientifically scientifically proven that it does actually burst into flame at around that temperature. So, uh, so he, he's right. And uh, as as Marshall said, uh, the fireman whose job it is to to burn all books. Uh, eventually steals a book out of curiosity. It's the Bible and uh, discovers the world of uh, of ancient knowledge. Um, But I don't know, it's it's actually quite dated now, I think. I mean, it'd be very hard to imagine a world where all books were considered uh, as dangerous things. I mean, you can see certain books being considered dangerous things, but uh, all literature. It's quite hard to believe now, don't you think? It
1: has been tried a couple of times in the past. The example that comes to mind, I think, is the Khmer Rouge. I think they tried something like that. And obviously, that didn't work out too well for Cambodia. But I think that it's more of a comment on the anti-intellectualism that's so rife in American society Bradbury saw himself. He's quoted as saying he doesn't see himself or didn't see himself as a predictor of futures, but as a preventer of futures. And what he was trying to say in the book, I think, was about the dangers of letting anti-intellectualism run amok. Um, I, th- I think the book, the issue of book burning, was symbolic, more than actually trying to say, yeah, we're literally burning all the books because how on earth could that happen? But it does, it it felt to me not so much like a literal, yeah, they're literally burning every book in the city, but like a comment on the kind of mindset
2: that could lead to that and what life might look like afterward. And there are aspects of the book that definitely do uh, gel with modern life. Uh, So, for example, the, oh, even though it was written, uh, released in the 50s, there are flat screen TVs everywhere. And uh, people spend all that, time looking at screens rather than reading books. And, uh, and that, I think, he, he, he did say in an interview was one of his themes, too, that, that people are ignoring literature and just looking at what's on the nearest screen. It was the golden age of, of television when he wrote this book, and he really didn't like television. I think that what we're saying here is that he probably predicted the Kardashians.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Actually, I disagree that it's a uh, tract against uh, uh, the anti-intellectual rise, because, uh, in fact, the, the good guys of the book not really that intellectual. I mean, the, the book is the Bible, which is not something you read intellectually. It's something you feel. And the um, uh, the, the good guys are the people on the fringe. And they're not really intellectuals. They, they're more like nature people who who, who live in simple dwellings. So um, perhaps the message is it's slightly different in my reading.
1: I think you could go a number of different ways with it. I think that the fact that it was the Bible, even though... It's a religious tract, it's a spiritual book, but it's also such a a valuable teaching treatise as well because there's so many stories in it and moral lessons. So, you know, it's been used throughout the years and in so many cultures for teaching in addition to, like, spiritual enlightenment or education. I think you could
2: look at it either way. And we've been talking about our Classic of the Week, which is Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And my book was Prince Lestat
1: and the Realms of Atlantis by Anne Rice. And then we talked about T.C. Boyle's book, The Harder They Come. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.
0: That was the seventh episode in this series of Read All About It. It was presented by Nuri Vitacci and Marshall Moore and produced by Phil Whelan. Coming up shortly, news at nine, weather-wise, certainly a chilly day, up to around 13 degrees expected maximum, possibly even some rain uh, patches developing uh, throughout this morning. Uh, Currently 11 degrees Celsius, relative humidity 92%.